You are listening to the podcast of Grace Bible Church Ann Arbor. We are the rescued people of God joining His Great Restoration Project. More information, including sermons in this series, can be found at graceA2.org. Thanks so much for tuning in. Uh, I mentioned this trip uh, in, to, to you guys before, but the, possibly the most frightening hike of my life took place along the Pictured Rocks National Lakeshore in the Upper Peninsula. Our family had been backpacking for a few days with some friends of ours, another family from the church. We have a picture here of us while we're still looking fresh and spry. There we are. Uh, One of us didn't want that picture shown because of the goofy hat that he's wearing, but he will remain nameless. (laughs) His name sounds like Mason Van Ryn. Anyway, so we were on this hike together, and uh, <clears throat> we did a very long hike that day, and we were pretty worn down, and if you've done any backpacking, you do get to a point at which you're kind of like, I just want to get there. I just want to be at the campsite. I want to get the weight off my shoulders. I just want to kick my feet up and whatever. And so we had done one of those hikes that day where we couldn't wait to get to the end. Unfortunately, as we began to look at the maps and recognize where the campsite was that we were supposed to be staying at, The end was actually three and a half miles farther than we had originally anticipated. And by that point, it was already starting to get a little bit dark. So we started to call every hotel we could find within a 50-mile radius, and there's not a lot of them up there. And so we quickly found out, oh, nobody has any availability. We are going to have to hike this three and a half miles in the dark. Now, hiking in the dark, I don't know if you've done that before, as long as the trail's well lit and that sort of thing, it's not the most frightening thing in the world. But, but, if it's a little bit muddy and there's lots of paths going in lots of directions, you're not exactly sure which path is correct, and there are cliffs descending into, the, into Lake Superior, and you can hear it crashing, and then it starts to get a little terrifying. And when people have warned you all week, oh, about bear and cougar, then it's really, really, really frightening, especially if they view you as the one who's expendable to cougar attack and put you at the end of the line, which that would be, that would be me. So that night we did the hike, and, and you know, We survived, just spoiler alert, but uh, we did the hike, and there were moments on that hike where the the adults, we were so close to the edge, we would form like a human guardrail and hang on to each other's arms like this so that the kids could then walk along this way and not not fall off. Now, here's the deal. I've mentioned that to you before, but I want you to imagine for just a moment that you are going to come with us on that hike. We've been down this trail once, all right? So Jason, with his impeccable style of hats and his trusty headlamp, will go at the front of the line, and then you get to go somewhere in the middle. Me, still expendable to cougars, go at the end. But before we go on the hike, I want you to imagine that I give you an option, and the option is this. Headlamp or no headlamp? Headlamp or no? No, you're like, of course I'll take the headlamp, but just give give it a thought. If we're in the dark and you don't have a headlamp, I promise you, so long as you walk really closely to whoever's in front of you and kind of hang onto the shirt, you're going to make it. You are going to make it. If you have a headlamp, it certainly will help you see the path a little bit better, but you're also going to see divergent paths. You're also going to see the cliffs. You're also going to see some dangers that are present. So what do you want? Do you really want to be able to see clearly? and see where we're going so we can get to the end together and like, oh yeah, it looks great. Or would you rather just sort of put your head down and hang on to somebody and just go for the three and a half miles? 
in the dark. Now, my guess is that most of you said, give me the headlamp. I'll take the headlamp, which is good because welcome to Romans 9 through 11. These are three dangerous chapters. These are three dangerous chapters where most people, I've noticed, have basically just gone, uh, okay, a lot of stuff about Israel. Turn this off. Let's just go. I'll hang on. Get me to the end. And at the end, there are these beautiful promises. It's all wonderful. But in these three chapters, there are countless verses I'm going to read, and then I'm not going to give you a satisfactory explanation, at least to your liking. It'll be satisfactory to my liking, but not to yours. And you're going to go, well, that seems like a path that might go over here, and that seems like a cliff that we could all fall off together. Yep. Yep. But the Apostle Paul is taking us somewhere, and he knows where he's going. And at the end of this journey together, he is going to say some amazingly powerful, encouraging things. But on the way there, we have to go through chapters 9 10 and 11. Now, if you haven't opened already, please do so to uh, page 945 or Romans 9 in your Bible. From the very beginning of this ancient letter, Paul has been pointing the Roman Christians to the center of their faith, which is the gospel of Jesus. This good news message that although every person is spiritually dead by nature and choice, God loved us so much that he sent Jesus to rescue us. It's by grace, through faith in Jesus, that we are saved. We can't be good enough. You can't be religious enough. You can't be righteous enough in yourself to save you. You must receive salvation from God. It is by, it is by grace, through faith, that this happens. Now, this doesn't mean you'll never suffer, and we saw this a couple of weeks ago. You're still going to suffer, and in some ways, as a Christian, you might suffer a little bit more. But there are these promises that were given that we have this, this, this justification. It's just as if we never sinned, just as if we've always obeyed, that God is going to give us this tremendous reward and he's going to hold it secure for us to the very, very end. And so as Paul's been working through Romans, he's been kind of addressing questions. It's as if he's predicting the question that you might have at this part of the sequence of his argument. And then he goes and he tries to answer that question. And that's what happens when he gets to chapter 9. He's trying to answer an important question that needs to be addressed. Because after hearing about all of these benefits and privileges and promises of what it means to be God's people, some people might be wondering, wait a second, God, didn't you already have some other people? Like, I've read the Old Testament, like the Jewish people, they're your chosen people, and yet I know a bunch of Jewish people who don't know anything about this Jesus or don't care about this Jesus if they have heard about this Jesus. So if they were your people and they're not saved because they don't know about Jesus, well, what about us? Now you're saying I'm your people, but is it possible that I can get lost is it possible that just like the Old Testament Jewish people, I might not ultimately be saved? And so the Apostle Paul, he heads into this question and tries to help them understand what's going on with Israel in particular. And he wants all of us to be totally and completely confident in the goodness and in the promises of God. And he's leading us to this beautiful campsite, if you will. And this is in uh, Romans 11. This is kind of where these three chapters end. It says this, Oh, the depth of the riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments. How inscrutable his ways. 
For who has known the mind of the Lord, or who has been his counselor, or who has given a gift to him that he might be repaid? For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. There's a beautiful resting place at the end of this trail. But to get there, we're going to see some side trails and some cliffs along the way. Now, for us to navigate these chapters, we're going to have to hold two things that seem like they don't agree in tension with each other. These two things that throughout the Bible you'll see come up over and over again, and they seem to contradict each other, but somehow in God's economy they don't. And we're going to have to hang on for dear life to these two things and recognize that in the Bible both of these things are there. And what are those things? Well, on one side, we see that the Bible teaches us that God is totally sovereign. He's, he's sovereign. This means that he has authority, control, and presence over and in all of creation. He is sovereign. He's the king. It's his. But on the other side, there's all this stuff in the Bible about humans being responsible. So somehow God's in charge, and I'm responsible. He controls, but I have to respond in a way to God when he speaks and when he directs. And these two things seem like they're different. And as you read through different Bible verses, you're like, is this a God in control passage or is this a human responsibility passage? These two things somehow seem to work together. God's sovereignty, our responsibility. This is an imperfect analogy, but it's a little bit like a director who can write music, set the time, train the orchestra, conduct and yet each individual still has to play their instrument. Again, it breaks down and some of you are, uh, but, but, but that's what we have to try to understand is that God is sovereign and we are responsible. So as we read through these chapters, like in chapter eight and chapter nine, it says that human beings are called, chosen, predestined. Ooh, words that for some of us are like a nice warm blanket. For others of us, it sounds absolutely terrible and somehow contrary to the character of God. And then we read right in the same chapter that, yes, God is sovereign, he's in control and all of these things, but also we must respond. In the very same chapters, it says, well, th these Jewish folks in particular didn't obtain righteousness because they didn't pursue it by faith. So God chose and humans pursued. So somehow, both of these things work together. Now, there are different schools of thought about this, and if you've been around Christianity for a while or you were raised in the church, you probably have a leaning on uh, uh, election and free will and Calvinism and Arminianism. And, and we have a class here. Dr. Dave Brzezinski teaches a class, and he's been working through Romans. They've spent five weeks talking about Arminianism, Calvinism, and Molinism, which I don't know if you're as familiar with that one as the other two. And he's done an excellent job. I've listened each week as he's trying to express and explain the differences between these schools of thought and where he thinks it should be. And if you're like, Pastor Ty, I really want you to pick one and tell me exactly what to believe. No, listen to the class, read our doctrinal statement. And when you do that, you're going to see that some parts of the doctrinal statement emphasize the sovereignty of God. And other parts of it emphasize human responsibility to respond to what God is doing in their life and has offered. These two tensions must be held together. But the end of the path, if we're doing it right as we study this, the end of the path is worship. Worship. Not confusion and anger and fighting each other, although that's fun sometimes. 
but it's worship. The end of chapter 11. It is a chapter about worship. I was reminded by Charles Spurgeon uh, that he said this, in God's word, the car of truth runs on two rails of parallel statements. A great many people want to pull up one of the rails. They will not accept two sets of truth. Predestination and free agency do not agree, so the modern Solomons assert. Well, who said? They do not agree. They do agree as fully as two rails on the tram line. We're like, what's a tram line? It's a train, people. It's like an old way. <laughs> One of the elders, I was talking to him about this, and he said, you know what's cool about that analogy of, of Charles Spurgeon? I said, what's that? He said, if you stand on a train track, if it was going dead straight, and you looked at the two rails, in the distance, it would look like they've merged into one. The problem is, we can't see far enough. Only God can. And so there are certain passages we're going to read, and we'll be like, this is a sovereignty passage. This is a responsibility passage. But somehow God makes them merge and makes this trail go forward. As I've been studying here, I, I've looked a lot at John Stott, J.D. Greer, Tim Keller, Charles Spurgeon, others. And they really helped me get this. And so today, as we dive into this chapter with all that kind of precursor stuff, we're going to do this in three ways. Three ways. Part one is a crushed heart. Part two is some clarifying insights. And part three is the challenge to us. So let us start with part one, a crushed heart. Romans 9, verse 1. I am speaking the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience bears me witness in the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing, unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen according to the flesh. They are Israelites, and to them belong the adoption, the glory, the covenants, the giving of the law, the worship, and the promises. To them belong the patriarchs, and from their race, according to the flesh, is the Christ, who is God over all, blessed forever. Amen. Now, this chapter is going to go on to show us how merciful and good God is. But before we get there, we have to recognize that the Jewish people from the Old Testament, that there's still this plan that God has, and it's, not, it's never necessarily been just about Israel. It was about blessing them and making them a blessing to all of the world. But as the Apostle Paul starts talking about this, and he knows that there are Jewish people who've rejected Jesus, and he knows that there's people who are maybe Gentile Christians going, well, what about them? I'm not sure it's going to work for me. He says, I, I want to talk to you about my brothers, my Jewish brothers and sisters, and when he begins to think about them and their rejection of the gospel, it is extremely, extremely painful to him that despite the fact that they have the patriarchs and the history and the prophecies and all the stuff, that many, many of them have rejected Jesus. It just, it is a crushing thing to him. I recently read a uh, message board post of someone who was desperate for ideas on how to get their beloved dog to take his pills. Now, I don't know if you've ever had this battle with a creature before, but in this particular case, it was absolutely critical, based on the condition that this dog had, that the dog take two pills every day or it would die. 
And this dog simply would not take the, they'd wrap it in cheese and peanut and do all this stuff. And they could not get this dog to take this medicine for its own good. The message, as I was reading, it was like, it was frantic sounding. The author or, or the, uh, the, the owner and the author of the post said, this dog has a piece of my heart and I'd be devastated if anything happened because of this. And all those of us who have known and loved a pet go, yeah, they kind of have a piece of your heart. It's kind of annoying, actually. I'm always like, why am I sad about a dog? It's just a dog. As I'm bawling. And this owner was desperate, brokenhearted, because the dog wouldn't take its medicine. It's a helpless feeling when something or someone you love won't receive the life that is offered to them. Listen to Paul's words. He uses phrases like great sorrow, unceasing anguish. He is brokenhearted that these Jewish folks, although they've been given all of this wonderful stuff, they have not received the life of Christ. He even goes so far as to say, I would be accursed if they would just be saved. And I, I gotta be honest with you. Most of my life I was like, no, you wouldn't. No, you wouldn't. Paul, come on, that's hyperbole, right? Like, any of you? Are you going, I'll go to hell so that these other people I barely know can go to hell? Is that, would any of you say that? I don't know that, that I would. But Charles Wendall said the reason he can say that is because one already offered their life for them and they rejected it, so he knows he can say it because they're rejecting the life that's been given. He knows, he knows that they desperately need Jesus. You know what he doesn't write? And this is interesting to me. He doesn't write, listen, so long as each person tries to be a really good person, they'll be fine. They rejected Jesus, but hey, they still read the Old Testament. They still eat kosher. They still like worship on the Sabbath. They're really good at being nice, thoughtful Jewish people. They're good. In fact, dear Romans, just be good and kind when you worship Zeus. It's fine. Just, just be a nice Hindu or a Buddha. He didn't say any of that. He says, it breaks my heart because the only way to be saved is Jesus. That's it. And it's not a kind thing or a nice thing to suggest that, no, you can do whatever you want. Imagine, imagine, okay, so poster, my dog is dying, pills, whatever, the whole thing. Imagine that people responded and said, don't worry about it. Is he wagging his tail? Well, well yes. Well, what does your dog like to eat? Well, he likes to eat dog food and table scraps. Just give him that. He'll be fine. Would that be kind for them to encourage that dog owner to not give life-giving medicine to the dog? No, you'd say that's deception and that's cruel. It's leading to death and the... The Apostle Paul here, as he's talking about this, his heart is broken because he knows that the only way to find life is in and through Jesus. And so as he thinks about his brothers and sisters, his Jewish brothers and sisters who have not received Jesus, it crushes him. It crushes him. He begins to try to explain how salvation works and God's mercy and all that stuff. And, and, and as we move into this next section, there are, there's a bunch more questions that people have. Because like, okay, your heart's broken, I get it. But, but here's my question about God's sovereignty and our responsibility. 
So for this next section, part two, we're going to call it some clarifying insights, and we are going to answer all of these brutally difficult questions very rapidly, and you're going to be amazed, all right? So this is part two, some clarifying insights. And if you're not, send your frustrated emails to Brantley Vosser. He doesn't get enough of those. Bvosser, graceay2.org. All right, here we go. Some clarifying insights. So <clears throat> you're like, all right, Paul, your, your, your heart is broken. I get it and all that, but how does this all work? First question he seeks to answer. Okay, since all the Jewish people aren't saved, only those who know Jesus, but, but they're clearly not all saved, does that mean that God's word or his promises aren't effective? That's the first question he addresses. Look at verse 6. It is not as though the word of God has failed, for not all who are descended from Israel belong to Israel, and not all are children of Abraham because there is offspring, but through Isaac shall your offspring be named. This means that it is not the children of the flesh or the children of God, but the children of the promise are counted as offspring. For this is what the promise said, about this time next year I will return and Sarah shall have a son. And not only so, but also when Rebekah had conceived children by one man, our forefather Isaac, though they were not yet born and had done nothing either good or bad in order that God's purpose of election might continue, not because of works, but because of him who calls. She was told, the older will serve the younger, as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Amen. Here ends the sermon of the day. Esau, I hate it. All right, so here's his insight there. For those who are wondering if God's word or plan failed, Paul says, nope, because the grand plan of God was to bless Israel and be a blessing through Israel so that he could have his arms wide open and draw as many people into his family as possible. And God has always been raising up a smaller subset from among the larger subset of his true remnant, the true believers, the people that were actually going to follow him and listen to him. God has always been raising up from within this remnant. And then he says this phrase about Jacob and Esau where he says, Jacob I've loved, Esau have I hated. And it raises some dicey questions about what does that mean to hate? Dr. B is going to talk about all the ways the Hebrew Bible talks about hate. And again, you can listen to the class even if you don't attend it by going online uh, at our website. But the word hate here is really, and love, are really about prioritizing. It's kind of like a husband loves his wife and hates everybody else. It doesn't actually mean that he wants to destroy and hurt and wound everybody. It means that his wife is prioritized up here in such a way that everybody else is a super distant second. That, that's one of the ways that the Hebrew Bible uses this phrase, love and hate. And he'll go into that a little bit deeper. But God's plan and his word have not failed because of all of Israel isn't saved because forever it was always about choosing a remnant from within the larger group. Okay, but I got another question. If God is just raising up a remnant, isn't that unfair to those who are not saved? In other words, what about Esau? Well, he answers that next. What shall we say then? Is there injustice on God's part? By no means. 
For he says to Moses, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy, and I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. So then it depends not on human will or exertion, but on God who has mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, for this very purpose I have raised you up that I might show my power in you and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. So then he has mercy on whomever he wills and he hardens whomever he wills. So Paul's insight was, what about Esau? He's kind of like Pharaoh. God does not owe Esau or Pharaoh or anyone mercy ever. We all deserve the full brunt of God's wrath. But by God's grace, some of us have received his mercy. Now, if, and I can make this promise today because many of our students are on spring break, but if today I walked up to one of our college students, one of you lucky souls, and I said, listen, I'm going to do something for you, but I'm not going to do this for everybody. And you said, what is it? I said, what I'm going to do is I'm going to pay off all of your debt, your school debt, your credit card debt, your car debt, whatever. I'm going to pay all of it right now. And I'm going to do it because it's a great sermon illustration. And I write this check. Boom, it's done. And you can deposit it. It's good. You can pay it off. Now, listen, would it be right or just of you to accuse me of being unfair well, in a way, yes, because I, that person didn't deserve for me to pay their way out of debt, so it's kind of unfair. Would it be right of you to say, well, you should have paid off everyone's debt? Now, most of us would say, no, if it's your debt, it's your problem. A few of us are crazy, and we think that I should have paid off everyone's debt, but many of us recognize that my debt is my problem, not anybody else's problem. So for me to come show mercy to someone is not so much about being unjust as it is about me being generous. And the Apostle Paul says, listen, everyone's spiritual debt is their problem, but God in his mercy has paid that debt and offered that sort of freedom to people. And then he uses Pharaoh as his illustration and says, God hardens Pharaoh's heart. God shows mercy on whom he will show mercy and he hardens whom he'll harden. And that sounds terrible. Doesn't that sound like God set Pharaoh up to fail? Like Pharaoh couldn't have done anything else. He hardened his heart. Do you guys remember how the Pharaoh story works? Anybody? Anybody like, does your brain go back? So here's what actually the Bible tells us about Pharaoh's heart becoming hard. Look at this Bible nerd moment of the day, if you will. There were a number of uh, plagues that were given. And at the end of each of those plagues, we see a phrase about Pharaoh's heart. And so this ought to provide us with some context for what Paul just said. Here, here are the uh, plagues. Blood, right? Water turning to blood. It tells us that Pharaoh's heart became hard. Say that God did it there. It's just that it became hard. Then there was a plague of the frogs, one of my personal favorites. And Pharaoh hardened his own heart. That's what it actually says in the text. And then there's gnats. Pharaoh's heart was hard. Then there were flies. Pharaoh hardened his own heart. Then there was a livestock dying. Pharaoh's heart was hard. And then there were boils. The Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart. When did God harden Pharaoh's heart? After attempt at speaking to him and offering him mercy time and time and time and time again. There's a plague and then Moses is like, you're going to listen to God now? And Pharaoh shut himself down. There's a plague. 
And, God, and Moses said, are you going to listen to God now? And he shuts himself down. Multiple times over, God keeps extending mercy that Pharaoh rejects. And in the end, God's like, fine. I, I, can, I can push you a little bit farther in the direction you're already going. There's this stuff called Bondo. If you're in construction or car repair, you might be familiar with Bondo. It is this, this like putty-like substance that is used to fill cracks in wood and dents in car doors and things like that. And the way Bondo works is you take out this putty and you put it on a board or whatever, and then you take this little tube of hardener and then you squeeze a little on there and then you mix it all together and you want to do the right amount because too much, it will harden too quickly and too little. It'll take a long time. But you mix it together so that it hardens up really nicely. Now Bondo without the hardener is still going to harden. It's still headed in that direction. It's just a matter of how quickly and how strong that will be. In many ways, it seems to me that God is saying, Pharaoh, stop it, stop it, stop it. He says, no, I'm sprinting headlong towards my doom. And finally God goes, okay, I can add a little bit more hardener to the mix here. But first, Pharaoh hardened his own heart. So who is to blame for Esau's actions and response to God? Esau. Who is to blame for Pharaoh's actions and response to God? Pharaoh. John Stott said, God's way of defending God's justice, uh, Paul's way, rather, of defending God's justice is to proclaim his mercy. That may seem backward to us, but it's not. Paul's indicating that the question itself is misconceived because the basis on which God deals savingly with sinners is not justice, but mercy. Still with me? Not really, but let's keep going. Here we go. Next question. Wait, I'm still not sure I like this. If God is truly sovereign, then how can any of us be found to be guilty? Anybody ever think that before? Well, you're in good, you're in good company. Verse 19. You will say to me then, why does he find, still find fault? For who can resist his will? But who are you, O oh man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us, whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. And indeed, he says in Hosea, those who are not my people, I will call my people. And her who is not beloved, I will call beloved. And in the very place where it was said to them, you are not my people, there they will be called sons of the living God. The Apostle Paul says that God is gathering more and more people to himself and that our response should be adoration, not accusation. Adoration, not accusation. We should be so thankful that he has shown us mercy, not so angry that not everybody has somehow received this Mercy. We are the clay and he is the master. He gets the praise and we get the blame. And if you're thinking, well, how does that work? How does that work? James Kennedy gave one of the greatest illustrations I think I've ever heard on how salvation works. So if you can't keep track of everything else, hang on to this because this, this, this ought to help. He said, imagine that I have five friends and they come to my house and they're all planning a bank robbery. Okay? He needs better friends. But this is just in the illustration. And while they're at my house, they're discussing robbing this bank and what they're going to do and blah, blah, blah. And he says, I go and say, guys, don't rob the bank. 
And I plead with them and I explain to them, if you do this, this is gonna happen. It's gonna, all this. like, don't do it. This is wrong. He's like, in every possible way, I warn them, I talk to them, I plead with them. I say, please don't do this. And they say, we are gonna do it anyway. And so they leave the house to go rob the bank. And as they're leaving the house, he, he doesn't know what to do anymore. So he sprints out of the house and he tackles one of the guys and he pins the guy to the ground with all of his might and he holds him still on the ground and says, I'm not letting you go. I'm not letting you go. I'm not letting you go. And the other four go off and they rob the bank. And while they're robbing the bank, things go awry. Not only do they get the money, but they also shoot somebody and it's a terrible thing and they get caught. Now, when they go on trial, only four of the five are going to be put on trial and found guilty for robbing the bank. Who do those four have to blame for the sentence they receive? Well, themselves. They robbed the bank. But what about the one who was tackled? Who gets the credit for the fact that he gets to walk free? Well, the tackler gets the credit because he, in his mercy, pinned him down to the ground. My friends, that's how salvation works. God has been speaking a warning to humanity and giving his word and making an offer of real life. And much of humanity, and in this case, he's talking about many people in Israel, but much of all of humanity have sprinted and said, I'm not listening to you, God. I'm doing my own thing. And God in his mercy has tackled a few of us. And he's tackling more of us all the time. And he's like, no, no, I got to get. So who gets the blame? Everybody who ignores the word of God. And who gets the credit? The merciful Savior who has pinned us down by his love and grace to the ground. Isn't that, isn't that amazing? When I, when I read that, I was just like, thank you, Dr. Kennedy. That helps me a lot. We can no more say to God, I don't think you're doing your saving right than a coffee mug can question the potter about the location of its handle. God is working it all together for his great plan and his glory. One more question. Yeah, but is God showing mercy to Israel still? This is, this is what Paul writes. And Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, though the number of the sons of Israel will be as the sand of the sea, only a remnant of them will be saved, for the Lord will carry out his sentence upon the earth fully and without delay. And as Isaiah predicted, if the Lord of hosts has not had not left us offspring, we would have been like Sodom and become like Gomorrah. What shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness have attained it, that is, a righteousness that is by faith. But that Israel who pursued a law that would lead to righteousness did not succeed in reaching that law. Well, why? Because they did not pursue it by faith, but as if it were based on works. They have stumbled over the stumbling stone, as it is written, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. Paul's insight is to say, look at Isaiah. There will be a remnant that is shown mercy and is saved and is tackled by grace. Otherwise, everyone would be destroyed. All of us would have been destroyed, but God is still saving. He's faithful to act according to his character and see us tackled ones through. Whew. Part three, a challenge for us. Oh, sometimes it's really nice to get to my third point. You feel that way sometimes? I feel that way sometimes, all right? Here's the challenge for us, and it's relatively brief. 
For some of you, you need to admit that God's been chasing you. You're actually here, not because a friend invited you, not because a family member bribed you. You're here because the God of mercy is chasing you. And you have to stop running. And you think, no, I'm going to find life my way. No, you're not. You can do it your way. There's a song about that. It just ends in a different place than you think that it does. It only ends in condemnation and death and destruction. And so let me nudge you today. Let me act as a guardrail from the cliff edge. Let me invite you to walk the path with Jesus. He's the only one. He is the place of rest, of safety and reward. Stop running and let him take you down and submit. For others of us, the challenge today, because we knew that part already. We, we, yeah, I've been a believer. I said the Lord saving prayer like every day, you know, whatever. Okay. For us, I think the challenge today is that we need to have our hearts broken, like Paul's heart was broken, for those that haven't experienced the mercy of Jesus. That we need to pray like crazy that God's mercy would just pour out on us and that people would be moved to respond to Jesus. I failed so badly at this a couple weeks ago, so badly. I was talking with some mutual friends about another friend. And this other friend was somebody who'd been raised in the church. They know all the Bible answers, whatever, whatever. And yet, they are living their lives for all intents and purposes as someone who knows and cares nothing for Jesus. Now, for a while, they were like, oh, yeah, I'm a Christian, it's all good. And even now, they probably say, I'm a Christian, it's all good, because they just don't want to get in an argument. They don't want things to be uncomfortable. But basically, they don't go to church. They don't read the Bible. They don't, they don't pray. They don't give. They don't raise their kids to know who God is. In fact, their kids are confused when someone prays. Like, okay, so they're not like walking a Christian life in any way, shape, or form. And as we were talking about them, I got mad. I was so frustrated. They should know better. How do they not, how can they not raise their kids this way? How can they not, and I was just so like, what is their problem? I hope they have a disaster befall them so that they will turn their lives around. I still kind of do, but, but. I wonder what Paul would have said if he walked into that friendly conversation and heard my frustration. He may have said, Ty, how much mercy have you received? You do realize you got tackled, right? It wasn't you're like, I'm going to sprint towards Jesus because I'm such a thoughtful, humble, holy person. No. You were tackled. How about you use that energetic frustration to pray? You got lots of juice in there. Get on your knees and pray. And maybe when you pray for Israel for these friends of yours who aren't walking with Jesus, maybe, just maybe, by the grace of God, you will get to see the Spirit move powerfully because our God is drawing more and more people to himself. What I want to do just for a minute is, let, let's just bow our heads and pray, but I want you to think of someone as we do this, someone that you want to be tackled. Maybe you are the someone. Maybe you're like, maybe this is me. But let's ask the Holy Spirit to begin to move.
maybe in a way that we haven't seen before or noticed, but let's, let's ask. So I want you to get that person in your mind. Father, God, I would ask that first and foremost, we would come to recognize, those of us who have been walking with Jesus for some time, we would come to recognize that we have been shown tremendous mercy, that we deserve nothing. And you've given us so, so much. God, there's somebody who's in our mind right now. Maybe it's, maybe it's us. There's people here who need to just let themselves be tackled. Would your spirit do that? Would they today in some way stop sprinting? Would they tell somebody, I need to stop running away from God? Would they fill out an orange card, mark a box? Okay, today I believe. Would they do something to say, Jesus, I repent. I'm done with my way. I want yours and yours only. God, for that person who hurts our hearts or maybe even makes us angry at times, renew our prayers for them. Let us see you move in a mighty way in their lives. Nudge us if we are to say something, but keep us praying no matter what we say, that they would know the truth that we know, which is you are so good and you are God. Pray these things in Jesus' name.